is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. I'm Leslie Hinkson of LTV. Today, we're talking about elite professions with Tanya Jenkins from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Tanya is the author of Doctor's Orders, The Making of Status Hierarchies in an Elite Profession with Columbia University Press. Our discussion was recorded on May 11th, 2020. Welcome, Tanya. From North Carolina. Thanks for having me, Joe. So I we did we found out in pre in pre conversation Tanya's also Canadian, Leslie. So now you're outnumbered. What? <laughs> Double the awesomeness. Taking <laughs> over the world. That's how we do it. And so Tanya uh, wrote a great book about status hierarchies uh, by uh, in a study of the medical profession. And before we kick off anything, uh, I enjoyed. The, the story in the preface about uh, that, the excerpt from the uh, novel Cutting for Stone. Can you sort of, it's just, it sets the stage so beautifully. Can you start us off with that, Tanya? Yeah, so uh, I start out with a brief excerpt from a book by Abraham Verghese called Cutting for Stone. Um, he's a physician as well as a, a, a writer. It's a, it's a novel. Um, but he's a physician who draws on loosely his own biographical experience to describe, um, you know, the 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 journey of a young fledgling physician um, from Ethiopia all the way coming to the U.S. And so the beginning story um, is this young physician who's trying to grapple with this interesting phenomenon that he notices um, in his intern year at a hospital, and he realizes that all of the other physicians at the hospital that he's studying um, are like him. They're not American. And so he kind of starts to ask uh, himself, and there's this interesting sort of exchange that he has with his chief resident. He asks, you know, where are all where are all the Americans, right? Um, and so his um, his chief resident, you know, uses a kind of metaphor to explain to this young, uh, you know, young grasshopper of an intern, um, and he d- makes this distinction between what he calls Ellis Island hospitals, right? These are places where, uh, you know, mostly non-U.S. medical graduates are practicing, um, and he compares Ellis Island hospitals to Mayflower hospitals, right? These are <laughs> flagship um, teaching uh, hospitals for big medical schools that are filled with um, U.S. medical graduates, right? Um, and and essentially, you know, that's really the phenomenon that's at the core of this book is understanding the segregation um, and the ensuing status hierarchies that exist between international and I also add osteopathic medical graduates as compared to U.S. MDs. Yeah. Wait, start us off by explaining the difference between the traditional MDs and DOs? Like, what's the difference between those two? Because I don't really understand it. And it's a difference I didn't really understand at the beginning either, being from Canada. Um, the U.S. is a unique country insofar as DOs or doctors of osteopathic medicine are allowed to practice medicine, um, just like MDs are. So it's, it's actually one of the, the only places in the world where that's true. And so doctors of osteopathic medicine, the profession of osteopathic medicine emerged in the 1800s as a kind of um, response to the the traditional, typical MD path or medical profession. Um, The way it's been explained to me is that, you know, back in the 1800s, MDs really didn't have very effective tools for um, treating sick patients. They would sometimes use tools that would make patients sicker by administering things like arsenic or mercury to their patients in a, in a, a good faith attempt to make them feel better, but in so doing, they actually made them sicker. And so the osteopathic medical pr- uh, profession emerged as a kind of alternative profession that really believed in the body's ability to heal itself, where less is more. Let's not give the mercury or, uh, you know, the, the, the harsh medications to patients and rather optimize the body so that it can heal itself. And so it emerged, like I said, in the 1800s and has kind of, you know, existed in parallel to the MD profession in the U.S. since then. Um, DOs have their own medical schools. And up until recently, they had their own um, residency program. So their own training pathways into subspecialty and into the profession. As of this year, 2020, um, all residency programs are now open equally to DOs and MDs. So that's a major change that's happened um, very recently in graduate medical education. 
But your book argues one of the big divisions is that for a long time, there were tracks and MDs, American trained MDs got to go to like the Cornell Wild Medical Center or, you know, one of those Pennsylvania hospital while they had these osteopaths or foreign trained MDs working at like, you know, Jamaica Hospital or Queens, uh, you know. So uh, can you give us the basic thrust of, of, of you know, the argument about uh, how these DOs, MDs and foreign and domestics are sorted in a status hierarchy in the profession? Yeah, so the argument, um, you know, stems from a puzzle, right, which is that exactly what you're saying, we have these status hierarchies, we have these segregations in the way that trainees are being trained um, so that we have the big university hospitals that are filled with USMDs and then the smaller community hospitals that are filled with osteopathic and international medical graduates. But we have those distinctions in the absence, and this is important, in the absence of formal policies. Um, so what I mean by that is that there are no U.S. laws or rules that require hospitals to first prioritize American citizens for residency recruitment. Um, and, and in addition to that, you know, there are no sort of increasingly with, um, as I mentioned, DOs no longer having their own separate training tracks, um, you know, what we have is this this uh, match system by which residents match into residency programs. It's a very complicated algorithm, a Nobel Prize winning algorithm that is, you know, that purports itself to be um, fair, objective, right? And, and in some ways was designed to be more equal than prior systems, uh, which were, you know, which, which led to more inequalities within the profession. So we're living at a time when there are sort of we have the best chances of seeing equality in the profession. We're not having these tracks anymore. The match is supposed to be unbiased and objective. And yet we still see these, um, the segregation persist. And so, you know, what I find are that largely informal social structures within the profession are what are leading to these, uh, the, these status, uh, not only the segregation within the profession, but also the ensuing status hierarchies. Um, and I, I trace this kind of process that I call status separation. Um, it's, a, it's an idea that I got by talking with a friend of mine who's a chemist. And he was explaining to me that the process of separation in chemistry involves, right, you know, you have a mixture of a bunch of things. And it, you know, either through natural means or through applied means, like, like through gravity or through a centrifuge, that mixture gets reduced to its component parts, right? And so, you know, what I'm doing is I'm applying the metaphor of separation in chemistry to what's happening in status to the profession. And I find that there are certain social forces that are pushing USMDs to the top of the status hierarchies, and then other social forces that are pushing international and osteopathic graduates to the bottom. Um, and just, you know, briefly, if I can sort of list what those social forces are, um, you know, they they include class inequality. So a lot of these processes predate long before the residents ever get to applying to residency. Um, I find evidence of professional sponsorship um, within the profession where um, USMDs are given, you know, a lot of support from the medical profession to get to where they need to go. Um, there are shared status beliefs, beliefs about who is most deserving and, and why in the profession that contribute to some of these outcomes. I observed rather troublesome differences in um, structural differences in training opportunities for residents in these different types of training uh, environments, which then, and, and this is sort of the final force, if you will, then those, those differences in training lead to um, differences in merit. Um, between between USMDs and international medical uh, international and osteopathic medical graduates, so what we end up what I end up finding is a kind of self fulfilling prophecy, where all along the the uh, the medical profession has a belief that international and osteopathic grads aren't as good as USMDs, um, and after three years of residency training in lower tier lower quality residency programs, there ends up being some truth to that, at least as measured by things like board pass rates um, and uh, match rates to certain fellowships. So Tanya, I have um, another background question, right? Because it seems to me as like we need to rewind a little bit, right? To the point at which, you know, the MD becomes solidified as this thing 
that is of greater value than the DO, mm-hmm. right? So how does that happen? Because once upon a time, even MDs were not very well respected, right? In this country, mostly because they were killing so many people, right? In the name of treatment, mm-hmm. right? So how does it become that this DO, right? That is seen as, you know what I mean? In some ways, superior <laughs> to the training that people get in medical school. How does it become that this that you get shut down, you get shut out? So yeah, there's there's a long history there. Um, I cover part of it in the book. Uh, some of it sort of extends beyond the scope of the book, but you're right. I mean, the 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 medical profession, the MD profession, right, has had a long history, a, a very sort of variegated history. Um, that started out with you know them not having so much authority and not being taken very seriously, in part because of what I was alluding to earlier, right? Of as you mentioned, not being very effective. A couple of things led to some changes in that status, right? So, uh, first of all, the American Medical Association formed a um, development that then sort of brought sort of a, a kind of cohesiveness to the profession that expressly excluded DOs. I, I might add, uh, up until the 1960s, DOs, I believe it was, I, I could double check the book, but I think it's the 1960s that DOs were, um, only then were they allowed admittance to uh, the, the AMA. Um, in addition to that, there were advances in medical science that um, really helped medicine consolidate its, the MD profession consolidate its authority. Um, The germ theory of disease was emerging, um, the advent of penicillin, things like that were all sort of coalescing around um, making MDs really sort of the the main arbiters of medical science. Um, And the other, I, I think the other sort of major factor that took place, 1910, was the Flexner Report. This was a report um, that was uh, commissioned by the American Medical Association to standardize low quality, to standardize medical education and to stamp out, you know, low quality uh, medical schools. And so, you know, growing effectiveness of medical treatments, um, the, the, the coalition of this, the coming together of the profession under the American, the auspices of the American Medical Association and the Flexner Report, all three of those things sort of really contributed to MDs taking off in terms of their professional dominance. Um, whereas, and, and, and a concomitant sort of uh, process led to DOs continuing to be subordinated because MDs became this sort of powerful profession and through its policies was actively subordinating DOs. So prior to the 1960s, DOs were um, were prohibited from serving as physicians in the military. They were prohibited from holding public office. They were even banned from working in certain allopathic or MD hospitals in certain states. Um, in 1961 in California, um, there was a push to actually combine the or, or subsume osteopathic medicine under the MD umbrella, um, effectively getting rid of the the osteopathic identity altogether. That was the same year, 1961, that the AMA considered whether or not to allow um, osteopathic physicians among their ranks. And what was ultimately decided was that no, and this is a quote, there cannot be two sciences of medicine or two different yet equally valid systems of medical practice. Right. So- right. So uh, it, I was mistaken earlier when I said it was the 1960s. If I'm not mistaken, it's the 1970s that finally DOs were allowed into um, the mm-hmm. ranks of the AMA. And so it, it became a very powerful organization. Um, well, so the other thing, the other thing that I, I noticed about that, right, <laughs> is it's also a means of like the discipline, exerting discipline, right? Uh oh, hold on a second. There's some screaming outside. <laughs> uh, okay, right. So if you are told, right, before you make the choice of what path you're going to take, that you know, hold on a second. Sorry about that. <laughs> Podcasting <laughs> in the age of COVID. They're going. They're they can't take it anymore. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this is like one of those examples of the discipline like disciplining, right? It's if it gets laid out for people well before they even apply for medical school, regardless of what kind of medicine it is deep down you actually think is the kind you want to practice, if all of the rewards are put in in the MD basket 
and almost none are put in the DO basket. Like who are like like who is who is going to choose right the MD path right? And so as you said, it's this self fulfilling prophecy where you're like, okay, all of the people who are regardless of whether you agree with the metrics, um, going to be the best doctors. Period. It also it tells you that this is where you're going to go and this is the kind of medicine you're going to have to practice. Definitely an element of path dependency. And, and you know, what I what the book does, uh, in addition to being an ethnography of, of two segregated hospitals, um, it, it's also a study that does life history interviews um, with with 100 over 120 physicians. And in the course of those life history interviews, you know, I, I asked these residents to take me through each of the stages that led them to where they are today. And so residents, be they osteopathic physicians or international medical graduates, understood that early life choices had some contributing uh, some contribution to, to where they are today. At the same time, and this is what, you know, is is particularly fascinating and concerning, I think, about some of these practices that I observed in medicine is that, you know, yes, some of this is path dependency, um, but, you know, part of this is also sort of the status beliefs that get worked out on this on the shop room floor when comparing two applicants that have very similar status profiles, right? Mm-hmm. Two very similar applicants with the same grades, um, you know, not being treated equally on the basis of beliefs about where they went to medical school and what that must mean about the applicant. And so, you know, one of the chapters in the book, chapter two in particular, looks at from the program's perspective, um, why these residents end up so segregated, why the programs end up um, uh, recruiting such homogeneous um, groups of residents, residents that all look the same uh, being either USMDs or non-USMDs. And what I found was that, you know, particularly in, a, in, a, in the large university hospital, um, that it, there was very little an international or osteopathic candidate could do um, in the way of extraordinary test scores uh, or in the way of, of exemplary letters of recommendation mm-hmm. that could convince program officers, program directors to look past their pedigree. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so so I think, you know, one of the lessons here um, it, that the book sort of points at is there is a widespread belief in meritocracy in medicine. Um, and I think even barring or even taking into consideration the path dependency, as you describe, Leslie, in the profession, um, there still isn't sort of the same kind of opportunities, I think, to to. Um, to establish oneself as being better than one's pedigree or to to distinguish oneself from from other candidates because of concerns about the status of of the application of the of the applicants and so um, i think it's a it's a multi multi-dimensional system so okay and my last follow up question and then i'll shut up for a while is so are all international doctors right or internationally trained doctors treated the same? It's a great question. Yeah. And so, no, the answer is no, they're not treated the same. Um, And so that's why there are three sort of subgroups um, in the non-USMD pile, if you will, in my book, right? There are the DOs. um, There are US citizens that go internationally to study um, often, but not exclusively in the Caribbean. And then there are the non-US citizen international medical graduates. And what I found was that each of these three types of physicians were, uh, you know, subordinated in the profession um, and were looked down upon, but for slightly different reasons, right? And so uh, DOs and Caribbean graduates uh, were often sort of put in the same camp insofar as it was widely assumed that they couldn't get into a U.S. allopathic or traditional medical school. Um what I'll say about that is that actually half of the sample, half of the individuals I uh, interviewed coming from the Caribbean or from osteopathic schools um, exclusively applied to those types of schools, um, many of whom did so because of a preference, be it financial, so some Caribbean schools are, are cheaper than American schools, um, or be it a, a more philosophical sort of uh, preference for the osteopathic approach to medicine. Um, and so my findings sort of challenge a, a little bit the the assumption that you only go to an osteopathic or Caribbean school as a plan B. Um, and 
so they were grouped together by program office, program directors, um, assumed to have been failed USMD uh, applicants. And, uh, you know, there were widespread concerns about their clinical knowledge. Um, they were widely considered to be um, less competent than USMDs from a, from a knowledge standpoint. And those concerns persisted. This is what I was getting at earlier. Persisted despite the fact that all applicants to residency, all medical graduates hoping to apply to residency have to take the exact same standardized sure. um, medical knowledge exams. Um, and that on average, right, uh, that, that uh, you know, these applicants typically do uh, very similarly to USMDs on the aggregate. Um, and so, you know, even scoring astronomically high on those exams did little to assuage concerns about clinical knowledge. Non-U.S. citizen international medical graduates were stereotyped as being almost uniformly brilliant from a clinical st knowledge standpoint. Um, they were widely viewed to be, uh, you know, scientifically brilliant as well as having a wide range of clinical um, skills. Right, having uh, many of whom, many many of them having practiced medicine extensively in their home countries prior to coming to the U.S. And so, from a clinical standpoint, a medical knowledge standpoint, they were viewed as extraordinary candidates, but they were very uniformly viewed as culturally incompetent. And so concerns for them had less to do with medical knowledge and more to do with their ability to interact with American patients. And again, interestingly, those concerns were applied somewhat indiscriminately to applicants from all over the world in, in such that foreign was foreign. It didn't matter whether uh, an applicant was from the UK or from a different country, uh, a non-English speaking country, for example, the concern was sort of broadly applied to all non-U.S. citizen international medical graduates. Um, and it persisted despite the fact that um, much like the clinical knowledge exam, there is a clinical skills component to the licensing exams that all all physicians have to take in order to apply to residency. Um, and so there was a, a, you know, at least a somewhat objective way of measuring clinical skills prior to determining or broadly labeling international medical graduates as as culturally incompetent. And so um, so that's where that's where I think the um, status beliefs play a really important role in the story. And you, but your and your argument is that these sort of mistaken beliefs affect residency placement, which ultimately does have long term implications. Can you explain how residency works and how that inequality process would cause sort of compounding inequality? Yeah, so residency um, is the on-the-ground practical training that physicians have to complete after, you know, usually four years of medical school in the U.S. or Canada. Um, other countries have a slightly different system, but um, in the U.S., it's it's what's called graduate medical education because it comes after undergraduate. Uh, four years of medical school. Um, and it typically lasts between three and seven years, depending on the specialty. I was studying internal medicine residents, and so it lasted three years for them. And what I observed by being sorted into these different hospitals, into community hospitals and university hospitals, that USMDs and non-USMDs had very different training experiences. Um, so not only from a clinical training standpoint, right? So they, uh, you know, they received... In, in the two different hospitals, um, you know, non-USMDs being in smaller community hospitals, having um, fewer resources meant that they were getting much less supervision. Um, they were getting much less feedback on their, uh, on their work. Um, they were having to make oftentimes medical decisions without the support of an attending physician present. Um, the particular community hospital that I studied did not have supervising physicians on hand, on site. Um, rather, the admitting physicians were community-based practitioners who were seeing patients in their offices from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and admitting them from the office. And so they would come by after work hours to, uh, to check in on their patients and wouldn't necessarily interact directly with the resident except uh, via phone or through the paper chart. Um, in contrast, the, the university hospital that I studied had a dedicated staff of teaching, supervising, attending physicians that were overseeing the work of the residents on a regular basis, catching mistakes when they were happening, and providing regular feedback to the residents. So that was a major difference in their training. Um, in chapter four of the book, I look at not so much their formal um, 
explicit training, but they're more informal, um, you know, professionaliza professionalization. Um, and, uh, you know, the chapter is called grooming, right? And so how the, the residents in these two places were groomed differently. A lot of that had to do with the fact that the community hospital, once again, had very few resources. And so the emphasis was really, the onus was really on the residents to produce opportunities for themselves um, to find research opportunities, to find mentorship, right? To find uh, outside electives that could then help set them up for applying for subspecialty or fellowship, which comes after residency. Whereas everything was packaged really neatly and easily for residents at, for USMD residents at the um, university hospital that I studied, they were matched with uh, no fewer than three mentors off the bat. Um, they were given a, uh, this was, this is true. They were given a 100 page catalog of all of the research opportunities happening within that hospital with the names and contact information of PIs that they can readily reach out to, to set them up with research opportunities. Um, and so the, the, just the, 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 the grooming really of the, uh, of these two groups of physicians looked hugely different. And so what that translates into Joe, at the end of residency is that, um, the residents at the smaller community hospital had lower board pass rates. Um, in fact, they had board pass rates that were lower than the national average, um, and, uh, and residents at the larger university hospital had higher board pass rates, which meant that they were, uh, you know, passing their, their American Board of Internal Medicine uh, exams at higher rates than the folks at the community hospital. Um, it, the other thing it meant was that it had important implications for uh, fellowship placement, right? That subspecialty training that comes after residency. Um, and, you know, the findings that I came across at these two hospitals are consistent with broader findings nationwide, where USMDs do much better on average than non-USMDs when it comes to matching into fellowship. I can give you just an example. With really, um, with really high prestige, very highly competitive specialties like cardiology, for example, the odds of a USMD matching to cardiology, this is nationwide, um, were... 7.41 times that of a non-USMD. And I'll just, I, the final thing I'll say about that is that match statistics or match data for fellowship, uh, which are produced by the, the you know, the, the um, National Resident Matching Program, that's the program that runs the match. Those fellowship statistics are still reported for fellowship along USMD and non-USMD lines. And I think that's really telling that that status cleavage within the profession persists where you went to medical school persists all the way to fellowship for how those data are reported mm -hmm. now fellowship is that like fellowship in our business it's like a research position is that what it's not so it's additional clinical training some some fellowships have uh, research components to them. Um, but after completing a residency in internal medicine, there are about 10 different special subspecialties that you can pursue further training in. Um, a cardiology fellowship, for example, is three years, whereas a, uh, you know, a sleep medicine special or, uh, fellowship is only one year. Right? And so there are a number of different subspecialties that you can pursue further training in after mm -hmm. residency. So if you take an equally talented person and you send them to the University of Chicago Medical School, then they're much more on the path to being a neurosurgeon or a cardiologist where that same talent, because of status differentiations, if they go to an osteopathic or a foreign school, they could be more on the track to removing plantar warts. Or uh, <laughs> is, that, is that basically what this amounts to? I can't tell you, Joe, how many times I've had that dream of being able to transplant the non-USMD residents from the community hospital that I studied into the university hospital to see how differently they might have fared. I mean, that would have just been the dream sort of experimental setup, right, for a study and would really drive home my suspicions, which are that I think given the right sort of training opportunities and, uh, and, and sort of stripping away a lot of the stigma um, associated with their degrees, I think these, you know, the, the trainees at the community hospital really would show as much promise as the USMPs at the university hospital. Um, unfortunately, I haven't figured out a way yet mm -hmm. to, to to transplant research subjects in that way. If if you if you're able to come mm -hmm. up with that that design, let me know. <laughs> uh, so sure, so yeah. I have a so I have a question. You know, 
And this, and I understand it's totally outside of the scope of your research because you obviously wrote this book in the before times, right? And um, yeah, and now we're here in the middle of a pandemic, right? And given every single thing that we know about like the, the disproportionate impact, right? Of like not so much, um, not, not so much getting getting COVID, but dying from COVID, COVID. So not the morbidity rate, but the mortality rate. And then on top of it, you have many of, you know, it's like African-American, you know, Latinx, like just working class, you know, Asian, American, Pacific Islander, right? And also, you know, very specific, very specific Native, Native American groups right, dying at these really crazy rates, right? Um, how much of that has to do with who gets placed in which of these medical centers, right? Because I think it's like a twin, it's a twinning, it's like a twin story, right? You know, so you send doctors that you think are culturally incompetent, number one, right? Um, although I would argue there are a whole lot of American trained, right? predominantly white, very smart, you know, in quotation marks, uh, doctors who would train to places like Harvard who were so culturally incompetent, but like whatevs, um, <laughs> right? But but these doctors are seen as culturally incompetent, seen as not having the same kinds of skills, and yet they don't get as much supervision, right? So let's talk a little bit about how that is a perfect storm for having these these disparate mortality rates. Yeah, I I think I think that's fascinating. What you just pointed to, right? So so in the words of USMDs, and th these are truly the words of some of the decision makers I spoke to, um, you know, that you know, non-USMDs are either culturally incompetent or uh, lack the the requisite clinical knowledge in order to practice safely, right? A lot of the decisions about um, not recruiting non-USMDs at the university hospital were framed in, in or couched in terms of patient safety. Um, you know, I, I asked them, what are the consequences? What are the implications of pooling these um, ostensibly culturally incompetent, um, medical knowledge lacking physicians into smaller community hospitals yeah. that are <laughs> less, 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 less resources <laughs> and that are treating, you know, primarily underserved populations. Uh -huh. And suddenly the story gets more complicated. Suddenly patient care becomes more complex and they yeah. started walking back. <laughs> oh, God. The implications of, you know, so, so, you know, at one point someone says, well, you know, it's not like, you know, we're giving people penicillin here in the community hospital down the street is giving them an herb to eat. Um, and in fact, if we look at, and these are based on nationwide statistics, very, a very powerful study that came out um, in the British Medical Journal uh, a couple years ago by a Harvard scientist that found that actually, uh, at least international medical graduates, once they complete residency and they're now fully trained attending physicians, they actually have higher or better patient outcomes than USMD physicians. Uh, a finding, by the way, that echoes research dating back to the 1960s that finds no significant differences in patient outcomes between international and osteopathic medical graduates and USMDs. So, you know, I actually think that in a pandemic setting, first of all, the front line is, is massively composed of international and osteopathic medical graduates. I have the figures in 2020 alone, um, the 40% uh, of those who matched to internal medicine in 2020 were international medical graduates. 40% of new residents are from, uh, you know, from outside the U.S. context, uh, many of whom I can only imagine if they're anything like the international grads I spoke to actually have quite extensive experience in pandemic type settings with infectious diseases. To internal medi or, uh, international medical graduates who had extensive experience with malaria um, or who saw tuberculosis every day, all day. And so, you know, maybe it's actually better to end up being treated by uh, clinicians, you know, who have that expertise uh, with the one caveat being that, you know, at the hospital level, hospitals are not 
all equal. Not all hospitals have the same resources. A physician is only as good as the resources that they have at their disposal to some extent, right? And so I think, you know, one of the one of the policy implications of my research is we need to pay closer attention to these training environments and inequalities between hospitals. You know, that there are hospitals out there training residents that don't have attending physicians on hand to supervise them adequately. Um, and then we have other hospitals that are, you know, exceedingly well-staffed and that are giving their residents every single opportunity, you know, I think is troublesome and I think, you know, merits more attention. Is it different in Canada? I have a friend who's in the medical profession who also harbored an opinion that American medical school graduates were from America because they couldn't get into the Canadian schools. So they had to pay their way to a degree. Have you seen anything or is that just one idiosyncratic view or? Oh, you mean a pro-Canadian view? There is a Canadian view. Well, I'm just wondering is, is like sort of the xenophobia in the system, is that like, it's really a shorthand for if I know where you're from, I have more confidence in it. And then I build a myth around why I fear that which is unfamiliar to me. Uh, and, you know, like these backstories, who the hell know, knows why someone goes to an American school? But I do notice that there is a view that if it's not like we did, then it must not be good type of mm -hmm. thing. Or I at least don't know and I'm not willing to risk it. I have studied Canadian doctors in, in my previous research, um, but not on this particular issue. And so okay. you know, I think what you're sharing is really fascinating. What I can say is that mysteriously... Uh, Canadian physicians are not treated as international physicians in the U.S., no. <laughs> uh, even though they require a visa, which is sometimes a shorthand for hospitals to say, we don't sponsor visas, meaning we don't want international medical graduates. Um, I found that they viewed Canadian graduates as just as equally competent as American graduates. Um, Part of that may have to do, admittedly, with the fact that Canada is part of the uh, Liaison Committee for Medical Education. That is the uh, the board that oversees medical education in both the United States and Canada. Um, and so there is some continuity there in terms of, you know, being overseen by the same bodies. Um, but, you know, just to give you an alternative perspective of how other countries are doing this, uh, you know, Australia is a really interesting example, I think, where... You know, Australia, much like the U.S., has a lot of international medical graduates that come uh, to, to train. But unlike the United States, it has a very specific written in black and white policy of prioritization for, um, for first of all, you know, depending on, on the, the location that you're in, uh, individuals who train in that location get first dibs. And then it sort of spirals out from there. You know, Australian citizens are given uh, priority. New Zealanders are given priority. And then if you trained outside of New Zealand or Australia um, and you're not a New Zealand or Australian citizen, you're given priority seven, which is the lowest possible priority. And, you know, in that way, it becomes clear to everybody involved that if you're an international medical graduate wanting to train, uh, underdo, undergo residency in Australia, that you're going to be given the lowest priority and you're probably going to be sent to the places nobody else wants to go um, in the specialties that nobody else wants. And, you know, the reason I point to the Australian case is that, you know, it, it makes clear it formalizes a system of stratification so that at the very least, there aren't these myths about meritocracy uh, that sort of fuel a, a stratification system in the same way that there, there exists in the U.S. There are no such clear rules in the U.S. And, you know, one of the key questions that I looked at in the book is how do we make, how does this, this system of stratification among physicians sustain itself? How does it reproduce itself? How do international and osteopathic graduates buy into this system right, uh, that places them at the bottom, but that doesn't officially place them at the bottom? And the answer has to do with this widespread belief in meritocracy, that with enough hard work and dedication, anything is possible, including you know, a neurosurgery residency position or a residency position at Harvard if you're an international or osteopathic medical graduate. Of course, there are exceptions, a handful of exceptions that help feed that belief in meritocracy. Um, but for the most part, what the widespread belief is, is that if if you didn't 
achieve those those positions that you were hoping to achieve, then the result was that it was because you didn't work hard enough or you didn't want it hard enough. And there was this internalization of self-blame that I observed, particularly among the Caribbean graduates, um, but not exclusively, that you know helps them buy into a system whereby they're systematically subordinated in status um, to, to US MBs, um, but not in a formal way, in a much more informal way compared to a system like Australia. So I have so I have a question about that, right? Because you know, your status, I, I think it's I mean, isn't it relative depending on in what context you're in, right? So for example, you're like, yeah, okay, like I had to be sent to this hospital over here, right? That like indicates to me that I didn't get like I like I like nobody really wanted me in like the high status places. But once you're in there, right, what is your status once you're in there, right? And then also, too, when you go, you know, when you're getting on a flight, right, and you're like, oh, Dr. So-and-so, do they ask you, like, okay, what residency program did you get into? What fellowship do you have? What hospital, right? So couldn't it also be that sort of the rewards around just the status of being a doctor period is an is mm. actually part of what's driving you staying in so that it and that even though you see that it's not a meritocracy right you maybe turn a blind eye to it because you're like well like my status relative to a lot of other people in this country is actually pretty high I think you're absolutely correct, especially for international medical graduates, the non-U.S. citizens, um, many of whom were just grateful to be part of the one in two IMGs uh, to actually match to a residency program. So they point to, you know, they look to their left, they look to their right, and they know that their, you know, their friends back home didn't didn't actually make it. So a lot of them felt like they were golden, right? You know, yeah, sure, they ended up in a small community hospital. Yeah, sure, maybe it wasn't their first choice. Yeah, maybe they ended up in internal medicine when they wanted to go into a much more uh, competitive specialty like anesthesiology or dermatology. But the fact is, you know, they're lucky to just be part of medical training in the U.S. at all. And and uh, yeah, so that's absolutely a kind of pragmatic acceptance, right, that I observed with international graduates. I think the story for, for osteopathic and, and Caribbean graduates looked a little bit different, right, because they are U.S. citizens. This is where they would practice. Um, and part of them are, you know, they are this among the select few. Some Caribbean schools have, you know, 50% attrition rates. And so, you know, never mind matching to residency, only 50% of them actually make it through medical school. And so there was some amount of, of you know, gratitude for having made it into a residency program and having succeeded in that regard. Um, but I do think that, you know, there was also an internalization of this belief in meritocracy. And the, the, the sort of caveat to that belief being that, you know, I should have worked harder. If I wanted to get into the specialty or the program that I really wanted to get into, it's because USMDs worked harder than I did. Mm. And I think, you know, throughout the book, I try to point to alternative explanations. Mm. It sounds a lot like the academic business. I got to be honest yeah. with you. Were you thinking about that? Did that, did that strike you? Of course. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, medicine's not the only profession where, uh, you know, there are status hierarchies and, and where there's a kind of, you know, bifurcation, you know, between those who end up in, you know, high prestige tenure track positions and then those who end up in, you know, lower prestige, um, much more precarious uh, non-tenure track, right, adjunct type positions. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, who you were before you went to grad school, what kind of resources you had, what resources your grad program had. Um, we were talking about this earlier, Joe, right? And and so, you know, I think I think that's a major um, parallel between my study and other professions. There, there are similar processes happening in the law right now where um, there's a, you know, bifurcation between, you know, attorneys who are, um, you know, working in law firms, but there's also a kind of uh, proletarianization, if you will, of attorneys that are working by the hour uh, and that are sort of doing, you know, menial tasks that other attorneys, you know, deem beneath them. And so we're seeing this type of broader bifurcation um, or polarization 
uh, within professions more broadly. And I think, you know, medicine in this case, in this book, is just one case study um, where I hope that my my theory of status uh, separation can be useful in, in other areas as well. After the whole process, what were your big takeaway insights on the workings of social hierarchy after doing all this? I think, I, I'll be honest, I think initially, um, so I, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll share this. I'm a first-generation college graduate. Um, neither of my parents went to university. And so I think I came into this project with a very naive understanding of how status hierarchies might look like in the highest echelons of uh, an elite profession, of, of an academic elite profession. And I think so for me, one of the big surprises is that, wow, it, it doesn't look all that different. <laughs> yeah. top, as it does at the bottom, right? Like these are American dream-like beliefs that we're seeing, uh, you know, amongst the, some of the most educated professionals in the country. Um, and and by the way, processes of othering of immigrants and processes of dependency on immigrants um, to fill jobs that Americans don't want to fill are also happening at the top, just as much as at the bottom. And and that yeah. to me, you know, again both being Canadian um, and being a first-generation college graduate, I think is just so fascinating to me about this project. Um, I think, you know, the more I learn about status and the more that I think about how it gets shaped and, and constructed, um, the more fascinated I become uh, about this this subject that's just so so quintessentially sociological, right? Mm -hmm. Status. Well, um, I always love to tell the story about how, like, I met, I met Joe like maybe my second week in grad school. And he said to me, I lost all respect for this place as soon as they let me in. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I was like, what? I got into Princeton? That's all it takes? <laughs> right? But, but then you enter, I mean, I mean, it's partly you enter into these spaces and it's not so much that they let you in. It's it's that you're there and you observe and you're like, huh, ah, yeah. aside from having a bazillion more dollars than everyone else, like, you yeah, know, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, and, and, and I went from a low status Canadian university. I uh, My undergraduate was at Carleton University, mm -hmm. which is not one of the pedigreed Canadian schools. So mm -hmm. I felt like I was going from, you know, neighborhood you straight to the top and it kind of looked the same. So let me ask you this, because, you know, one of the insights that I've taken from my points of contact with elite culture is that uh, sometimes I feel like it's a lot of nothing. Mm -hmm. Like if a DO doesn't get these internships, but they they can still make can they still make great money? Like, do they really make much less? Do their patients die that much? Is this really, is it, is there a big structure, is this a big structural problem with real consequences? Or are we really just fretting over a bunch of sort of pedigreed white people who want to stick to themselves with no real, you know, benefit or difference? Yeah, that's a great question. I think at the end of the day, like I said, um, you know, the, the, the data suggest that there there don't seem to be any massive differences um, in terms of patient care, depending on who's who's offering it, a USMD or a non-USMD. Um, in fact, the differences seem to be in favor of non-USMDs. Um, where I worry is, is where the, so, you know, these status hierarchies matter tremendously to the professionals themselves. Where I begin to worry is, is you know, where they start to trickle down and uh, impact others. And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. This sort of speaks to a little bit of what Leslie was referring to earlier about, you know, is it enough to just be a doctor, right? And to sort of be happy with that. You know, these status hierarchies, as I mentioned, persist long after residency, as do the sort of status beliefs and impressions of competence long after residency. So, you know, one way that these status hierarchies matter after residency um, was sort of elucidated by this particular study that found that USMD primary care practitioners were less likely to refer their patients in a hypothetical vignette 
type situation. The study was offering vignettes to these primary care doctors, less likely to refer their patients to international medical graduate specialists, even though they might be, and one of the vignettes showed that the international medical graduate had more specialized expertise and was in fact a better provider than the sort of the the, uh, counterpart, which was a USMD. And so we're finding that these status hierarchies matter post-residency for referral patterns, which could ultimately affect patient care down the line. And this is something that is incredibly difficult to measure, right? We, you know, there are studies that can do case comparison, case controlled comparisons across the board, looking at two hospitals and looking exactly at, you know, who's doing the caring and and whether USMDs do better than non-USMDs, but it's really hard to grasp the impact of something as simple as a referral um, on patient care, you know, and so, you know, so I, those are things that worry me, that trouble me about these status hierarchies, you know, and the other thing is, you know, we could consider the the impact for broader social mobility and social inequality in the United States, right? A lot of the uh, Caribbean and osteopathic medical graduates I spoke to came from more modest socioeconomic status backgrounds. And while Entering the medical profession for some was a huge leap in status compared to where they came from. Um, it seems like there are still, you know, the, the status hierarchies really influence or can 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 limit, um, you know, their mobility once they're in the profession. Um, you know, status hierarchies that are effectively, you know, serving uh, or, or, or are to the benefit of USMDs. Right. So I, I hear what you're saying. I think, you know, sometimes we think, is this just a big to do for nothing? Um, I think there are real, real consequences, both on patients and on, uh, you know, on, on professionals that are, are trying to sort of, you know, fulfill their dreams. Thank you very much for joining us, Tanya. It was really nice to meet you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. A special thank you to Tanya Jenkins from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Her book is Doctor's Orders, The Making of Status Hierarchies in an Elite Profession with Columbia University Press. Music by Lena Orsa on behalf of Leslie Hinkson. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.